Reflections on Herman Melville's Billy Budd by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 Well, I'm certainly aware of doing what we're doing here this morning on Memorial Day weekend. Simone Weil said that uh, patriotism was is a is a pagan virtue which we adopted from Rome without uh, baptizing it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, my father was killed in uh, one of the one of the more senseless of the many senseless battles in the history of the world. Uh, so I have some uh, ambivalent feelings about Memorial Day. At the close of our session today, I want to speak about uh, remembering and the power of remembering. And certainly that's one of the things that we try to do on Memorial Day. And there are various ways to remember. One is to uh, remember the facts. Perhaps the most typical way of remembering is remembering more or less the mystifications. And you know that my, one of my favorite of Nimrod's poems, history is given and taken away, murders become memories, and memories become the beautiful obligation. That's really the thing that ought to be quoted on Memorial Day. And the other way, the third way of remembering, is the one that seems to me most appropriate, and that is uh, to, to remember that the word truth in Greek, aletheia, means to stop forgetting. Walter Wink has written some books on the subject of the powers and principalities. But I, I want to pick up uh, on some of the things that have come through him and his work uh, and then reflect on what we've been talking about. The New Testament references to powers and principalities and similar terms help us to recognize that we live our lives in the context of an ethos and a mythos which comprise the spiritual environment that exerts a powerful influence on how we perceive and respond to the world. They are one of the New Testament's ways of speaking of the cultural environment. This environment will be one that makes one set of assumptions axiomatic and another set patently absurd. The same spiritual environment will have considerable influence on what we regard as morally conscionable and what we, reg we regard as repugnant. The spiritual atmosphere is, in Walter Wink's words, quote, the general spiritual climate that influences humanity, in which we live and move and lose our being. Though the New Testament is far from unambiguous with regard to this hovering spirit, the most profound passages touching on it are those that claim that it has been or is being subordinated to or even negated by the Jesus event. But the spiritual movement that led to the Jesus event had already begun the work that the Gospels would then take up on the larger world stage. Very slowly, the Bible has exerted a countervailing force to the sacrificial cult. It forced the brutal episodes of human victimization on which the sacrificial cult had depended to operate increasingly with, without religious sponsorship. This has been an anthropological achievement we, we can, I think, properly attribute to the Old Testament and especially the prophets under whose influence the Hebrew Scriptures came to be. 
Because of this influence, the sacrificial cult has an increasingly difficult time finding religious sponsors and must therefore find non-religious ones, though these still have to be embroidered with a pseudo-religious mystique to be entirely convincing. Increasingly, the cult has had to rely on historical rather than religious mystification. The sacrificial cult has proven versatile in adapting to its secular environment. It has learned to exploit historical emergencies, in the alarming atmosphere of which sacrifices are less likely to awaken widespread revulsion. It has learned to supply these episodes with the best available rationalization under the circumstances. And like the gods of old that God worshipped under various names, the modern cult idol adapts to almost anybody's delusional system. The modern idol is worshipped here as national security or there as the revolution of the masses. It can as easily draw its animating energies from the fear of social disruption or from the zeal for political reform. What it subtly inserts into either is some version of the wisdom of Caiaphas. It's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. Lenin's flippant comment that you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs is a variation on Caiaphas. As are the words of Jefferson, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. The Gospels have now begun to call into question even the historical sponsorship of the sacrificial cult. This is, as we have said so many times, the gradual consequence of having the gospel values in the cultural environment. The end result will be that the forces of history and the wisdom of Caiaphas will, will be deprived of moral legitimacy. The end will come, writes St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And those words, dominion, authority, and power. In the Greek, they are, dominion is archon, and authority is exousia, and power is dunamis. Those are words that have to do with this whole notion of power and principality. So what Paul is saying is that uh, the working of Christ in the world, that is to say the ongoing work of the, of the Spirit of Christ and the church in the world, is to de deprive if you will, the powers and principalities of their legitimacy. The sacrificial cult has its archon, exousia, and dunamis, from which it derives its moral and cultural legitimacy. In part because the human race must surely evolve along lines that lead away from the victimization mechanism, but more specifically and more tellingly because of the revelatory role played by the Gospels with respect to sacrificial system. The primitive sacred, the primitive sacrificial cult has been forced to conceal its true workings in a historical environment that the Gospels are making less hospitable to its cultic reasoning. The cult's necessary acts of camouflage require a degree of self-consciousness regarding the sacrificial mechanism that further jeopardizes its smooth functioning, inasmuch as not even the sponsors and priesthood of the cult can play their roles with the requisite composure if their awareness of its true irrationality is too keenly felt. Increasingly, however, these rationalizations require more and more skill, skillful argumentation, 
more and more obvious effort expended in the attempt to justify the cult ritual. And this is where Melville's Billy Budd comes in. Because particularly the latter part of that story is an amazing parable about the effort that has to be expended single-handedly by Captain Veer in order to sell the cult ritual to a reluctant community. The very fact that effort is having to be expended in this regard is a symptom of the situation, the historical situation. And what we get in the last part of the story is the high drama, very uh, electrifying drama of involving the question, will the execution of Billy survive the obvious revulsion on the part of everybody on board except for Captain Veer? Or can Captain Veer summon the argumentation and the rituals and the discipline and, uh, and so on and so forth to subdue the revulsion. And I think we can see that as a historic, as a parable about the historical moment in which we live. Uh, Melville throws out a number of metaphors for what he's investigating here. And I think one of the most interesting uh, is this one. He says uh, at one place, he refers to a writer whom few read, who wrote the following. Forty years after a battle, it is easy for a non-combatant to reason about how it ought to have been fought. It is another thing personally and under fire to have, to have to direct the fighting while involved in the obscuring smoke of it. Much so with respect to other emergencies involving considerations both practical and moral, and when it is imperative promptly to act. And here's his metaphor, which I think is very helpful. The greater the fog, the more it imperils the steamer, and speed is put on, though at the hazard of running somebody down. Little wean the snug card players in the cabin of the responsibilities of the sleepless man on the bridge. Now, now there's a metaphor for you. The fog sets in. One has to get out of that fog. There is a, there is a, a, a mission and uh, very likely one that's regarded as worthy mission that has to be carried out, and there's the fog. So one tries to get out of the fog by putting on speed, knowing that uh, that increases the likelihood that somebody will be run down. We pick up the story where uh, at the Drumhead Court, where Captain Veer, uh, the three uh, members of the court, appointed by Captain Veer, have assembled, and Billy is there, and Captain Veer is there, and, and Captain Veer is the only person there other than the accused who can testify as to the facts of the situation. So he testifies to the facts. And uh, then the court asks Billy if the facts are so, as Captain Veer has uh, counted them, and Billy says that what Captain Veer says is true, but what, ca what uh, the master-at-arms said, uh, Claggart, what Claggart said is false. Claggart said that Billy was... Uh, had mutinous uh, intentions. And so the question comes up, why would Claggart try to sabotage Billy like that? And uh, Billy says that, of course, he has no idea why Claggart would try to do that. And uh, 
then he looks to Captain Veer, quote, deeming him his best helper and friend. And Captain Veer says the following. The point you make is hardly material. A martial court must needs, in the present case, confine its attention to the blow's consequence, which consequence justly is to be deemed not otherwise than as the striker's deed. He rules out of order these other considerations, circumstantial considerations. He says, oh, we're, on, we're here to d decide who did it and what was the consequence of it and what the code says about that and carry out the, the sentence. And all other considerations are ruled out of order. All other mitigating considerations are herewith ruled out of order. And here's what the story says. Now, this utterance, the full significance of which it was not at all likely that Billy took in, nevertheless caused him to turn a wistful, interrogative look toward the speaker, a look in its dumb expressiveness not unlike that which a dog of generous breed might turn upon his master, seeking in his face some elucidation of a previous gesture ambiguous to the canine intelligence. You see that wonderful thing? Billy looks at Captain Veer as though to say, now, well, I wonder what that means. See? And then the next sentence is, nor was the same utterance without marked effect upon the three officers, more especially the soldier. Couched in it seemed to them a meaning unanticipated, involving a prejudgment on the speaker's part. So they're stunned by it because they do understand what it means. It means that this case is going to be limited to the facts and the conclusion and the execution of the sentence. But they are alarmed by it. The next sentence says, it served to augment a mental disturbance previously evident enough. So the three members of the court are very disturbed by this defining of the case in such, in such uh, limited term. So Veer has his work cut out for him. You see, Veer is now having to make the sacrificial act acceptable to three men who, though they are loyal Navy men, find it in this situation unacceptable. Turning, he to and fro paced the cabin athwart. In the returning ascent to windward, climbing the slant deck in the ship's lee roll. You see, he's walking back and forth across it. He's... He's uh, now having to deal with these three uh, judges. And he's walking back and forth, but the ship is rolling all the while. This will come back up at the moment of Billy's execution, the same, the same roll. The ship is rolling, and so when he goes uh, across the deck, he has to lean into it and walk up hill, so to speak. Turning he to and fro, paced the cabin athwart in the returning ascent to windward, climbing the slant deck in the ship's lee roll without knowing it, symbolizing thus in his action a mind resolute to surmount difficulties, even if against primitive instinct, strong as the wind and the sea. Now, there's a wonderful metaphor for what he's having to do. He is having to subdue what the text here calls the primitive instinct. Uh, but I think there may be more than just a touch of Melville's romanticism in the word primitive. Uh, there may be a touch of irony in it as well. So watch what happens as, the t as this passage goes on. 
so the so far it says he is having to overcome these ins, these quote in, primitive instincts in the three officers. Presently he came to a stand before the three. After scanning their faces, he stood less as mustering his thoughts for expression than as one inly deliberating how best to put them to well-meaning men not intellectually mature, men with whom it was necessary to demonstrate certain principles that were axioms to himself. So now, you see, we're, in a sense, inside Veer's head. And to Veer, these feelings that he is having to rule out of order, feelings of sympathy, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, are primitive instincts. And what he must now do is he must now tutor the intellectually immature with this greater wisdom of his. Truth of the situation, of course, is that Veer is presiding over the most primitive of all ritual. But he is, he is the one who will provide that ritual with its intellectual argumentation, its intellectual justification. He is the one who will gussy it up in, uh, in thought so as to make it pass muster before these people who, have, who already are beginning to show revulsion toward it. Now, it says here uh, that he must find a way to put it to well-meaning men not intellectually mature, men with whom it was necessary to demonstrate certain principles that were axioms to himself. Now, these axioms are, I would like to suggest, uh, the axioms of Caiaphas. It's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. Now, Veer has a two-level, literally, sort of upstairs, downstairs, so two-level, uh, his problem is, is on two levels. The officer are those to whom he must appeal intellectually. So he must uh, supply them with philosophical argumentation, uh, the justifications based on... Uh, their loyalty to the king and their duty as naval officers and uh, the historical consequences of failing to live up that duty and so on and so forth. So he has to provide that to the officer. But the, but the Blue Jackets are, the, the crew members, you see, are also going to show revulsion at this ritual. And so he must address them. He doesn't address them in terms of our, the, the intellectual uh, rationalization. He addresses them with discipline and ritual. But we have to see, this is two ways of subduing a revulsion to the sacrificial rite which is surfacing in this story and I would suggest in history. And so Captain Veer, good, decent Captain Veer, with a little flaw, there's a little flaw in Captain Veer, but in any case he's you know, by the by, general standards, a pretty decent man. It, the question is, what's the spiritual environment in which he lives and moves and loses his being? Here's how Melville describes Veer's uh, attempt at persuasion. We don't get the exact words, but we get, uh, Melville says, uh, what he said was to this effect. Hitherto I have been but the witness, little more. 
and I should hardly think now to take another tone, that of your coadjutor, for the time, did I not perceive in you, and at the crisis too, a troubled hesitancy. Proceeding, I doubt not, from the clash of military duty with moral scruple. Scruple vitalized by compassion. For the compassion, how can I otherwise than share it? But, mindful of paramount obligation, I strive against scruples that may tend to innervate decision. Melville mentions the word crisis. He says, I perceive in you, and at the crisis too, a troubled hesitancy at the crisis. Of course, we get the, as you know, we get the word crisis from the Greek, which means judgment. The word judge, the Greek word crisis means judgment, means the moment at which what we do is heavy with consequences. It's a fateful moment. It's not an ordinary moment, but a moment in which the next thing you do say or be is profoundly revealing about you and the whole cosmos in which you inhabit, so that it's a crisis moment. It's a moment of, in which who you are and where you keep your treasures is going to be revealed. And in a sense, this is like the trial of Jesus before Pilate, which is in fact the trial of Pilate before Jesus. Veer and his the whole operation which he is sponsoring is on trial here as well. But he says, I see a hesitancy, a troubled hesitancy in you and at the moment of decision. So he says, we, I must try to overcome your compassion with an explanation of the paramount obligation. Now, obligations involves duty, involves meeting one's responsibility. A paramount obligation would mean that I have responsibilities to meet. So, uh, Veer argues. He says, as to your scruples, let's bring them to light and challenge them. Make them advance and declare themselves. And so he says the truth of the situation. He says, how can we adjudge to summary and shameful death a fellow creature innocent before God? Now there's the question. He says, I feel that too. It is nature. And notice he's playing again on this on uh, primitive and nature as opposed to these other things which take precedence over that. He said, this revulsion you have uh, to executing an innocent man is nature. But do these buttons that we wear attest that our allegiance is to nature? No, to the king. Suppose condemnation to follow these present proceedings. Would it be so much we ourselves that would condemn as it would be martial law operating through us? For that law and the rigor of it, we are not responsible. We are not responsible. He has just said, I'm now going to talk to you about the paramount obligations and then comes back around in order to say, we just work here. We are not responsible. And this is part of the mystification, you see, that's required for putting to sleep those revulsions. Here, the three men moved in their seats 
less convinced than agitated by the course of an argument troubling but the more the spontaneous conflict within. Now, I would just suggest that they are fidgeting in their seats because the gospel has had an effect on the environment in which they live. Perceiving which, the speaker paused for a moment, then, abruptly changing his tone, went on. So, Veer notices that they're not quite... He's not being completely convincing. He notices that they're twitching. And so he pauses, gathers himself up for another approach, and abruptly changes his tone. And he says, to steady us a bit, let us recur to the facts. In wartime at sea, a man of war's man strikes his superior in grade and the blow kills. Apart from its effect, the blow itself is, according to the Articles of War, a capital crime. Furthermore, and then he's interrupted, but just in the, while he's being interrupted, let me interrupt as well and say, what he's doing and what he's about to do is, is to present the Caiaphas argument with all the bells and whistles. It, keep, it comes back around when one version of it doesn't, doesn't satisfy, he comes in and provides it from another slant. But over and over again, it can be analyzed as the Caiaphas wisdom. It's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. He's interrupted, though, by uh, the officer of the Marine says, but surely Bud proposed neither mutiny nor homicide. And Veer says, surely not, my man, my good man. And before a court less arbitrary and more merciful than a martial one, that plea would largely extenuate. At the last assizes, it shall acquit. At the last judgment, that argument will acquit. But how here? We proceed under the law of the Mutiny Act. In feature, no child can resemble his father more than that act resembles in spirit the thing from which it derives, war. So what he's saying is, the Mutiny Act is a metaphor for war. In His Majesty's service, in this ship indeed, there are Englishmen forced to fight for the king against their will. Against their conscience, for aught we know. Though as their fellow creatures, some of us may appreciate their position, yet as Navy officers, what wreck we of it? Still less wrecks the enemy. Our impressed men, he would fain cut down in the, in the same swath with our volunteers. And as regards the enemy's naval conscripts, some of whom may even share our own abhorrence of the regicidal French directory, it is the same on our side. War looks but to the frontage of the appearance. And the Mutiny Act, war's child, takes after the father. Melville is saying, the Mutiny Act is a metaphor for war. Now, what does the Mutiny Act do? The Mutiny Act, I was using the, the uh, Girardian hermeneutic here for a second. The Mutiny Act converts reciprocal and unofficial violence into unanimous and official violence. The mutineers are hung and order is restored. And that's a metaphor for the whole sacrificial uh, resolution of the crisis. 
to convert unofficial reciprocal violence into official unanimous violence involving a victim and restoring order. Now, Melville is saying that is what war does. So Veer is trying to close off these these uh, objections that, that the three men are raising. And they represent the the thoughtful humanity. And and Veer is the, is the one who is sponsoring, not because he's a vicious man, but because that's where his loyalty is. He is the one that is uh, presiding over the, the, the ritual. Uh, the sailing master says, can we not convict and yet mitigate the penalty? Veer says, gentlemen, were that clearly lawful for us under the circumstances, consider the consequences of such clemency, says Veer. The people, meaning the ship's company, have native sense. Most of them are familiar with our naval usage and tradition. And how would they take it? Even could you explain it to them, which our official position forbids, they, long molded by arbitrary discipline, have not that kind of intelligent responsiveness that might qualify them to comprehend and discriminate. No, to the people the foretopman's deed, however it be worded in the announcement, will be plain homicide committed in a flagrant act of mutiny. What penalty for that should follow, they know. But it does not follow. Why? They will ruminate. You know what sailors are. Will they not revert to the recent outbreak at the Nore? Aye. They know the well-founded alarm, the panic it struck throughout England. Your clement sentence they would account pusillanimous. They would think that we flinch that we are afraid of them, afraid of practicing a lawful rigor singularly demanded by, at this juncture, lest it should provoke new troubles. This reminds me of the old song, I was looking back to see if you were looking back to see if I was looking back. Where is the, you see, it's, it's fear-ridden. It's fear-ridden. And uh, finally, the, the, the fear at the core of it is surfacing. A very circumspectly, you see, never declaring itself as fear, always, pre always presenting a much more uh, uh, flattering uh, self-reference, but you, clearly that's what it is. And it's the one that speaks to the officer. But it is not improbable, says the text, that even such of his words as were not without influence over them, less came home to them than his closing appeal to their instinct as sea officer. In the forethought he threw out as to the practical consequences to discipline, considering the unconfirmed tone of the fleet at that time, should a man of war's man's violent killing at sea of a superior in grade be, follow, be allowed to pass for aught else than a capital crime demanding prompt infliction of the penalty. So that was finally convincing, the fear argument, you see. This could get out of control. So he's convicted and sentenced to death. And Veer goes and has a meeting with Billy in the cabin, and we don't know anything about that meeting, but uh, uh, Melville offers us conjectures. Captain Veer in the end may have developed a passion, sometimes latent under an exterior, stoical and indifferent, or indifferent. He was old enough to have been Billy's father. An important reference, by the way, very important. The austere devotee of... 
military duty, letting himself melt back into what remains primeval in our formalized humanity, may in the end have caught Billy to his heart, even as Abraham may have caught young Isaac on the brink of, resol of resolutely offering him up in obedience to the exacting behest. Now, we have talked about Billy expecting adoption when he first went to see, be confronted with uh, Claggart's accusation and uh, discovering, uh, I think, the emotional load that he receives on that encounter is that uh, instead of an adoption, he's being accused of treason. Uh, so the adoption question is still on, on, the, uh, on the table. And now he goes in this most intense moment, and the narrator says that it's very likely that Veer uh, clasped him to his breast, as Abraham must have clasped Isaac on the brink of resolutely offering him up in, obe in obedience to the exacting behest. Well, it's quite clear, and obviously what Melville is trying to get us to remember, is that Abraham did not offer Isaac up. I mean, nothing could be clearer. But you see, the, re the, the real model for Veer and Billy is not Abraham and Isaac, but Agamemnon and Iphigenia. Agamemnon sacrifices Iphigenia in order to, in order to win historic, historical prestige as the great commander of the Argive forces at Troy. So uh, that's the real parallel. And I think the Abraham Isaac one is thrown in just to remind us that uh, the Bible says you don't do what he's about to do. Veer has now to announce to the crew what's going to happen. In announcing, he did not use the word mutiny. Now, there's what, what Melville is showing us is how carefully this whole thing is now being orchestrated. He's careful not to use the word mutiny because uh, the less we use that word, the better under the circumstances, right? It's not putting any ideas in anybody's mind. And he didn't take the opportunity to give anybody a lecture on discipline because he figured the execution of this sentence would be all the lesson they needed. Remember, the Pharisee is the one who draws the line used in, in blood between what you can and cannot do, what's, what's the in-group and the out-group, what's, uh, what's pure and impure and all that. So he's playing the pharisaical role there, you see. He's not going to argue it, he's just going to demonstrate it we must execute because we must give an example. Now, there's a pagan, there's a pagan rationalization for you. That, that's, that's, that's just barely camouflaged. We must carry this execution out because we must provide the masses with an example. But anyway, he simply announces it's going to happen. Um, their captain's announcement was listened to by the throng standing, of standing sailors in a dumbness like that of a seated congregation of believers in hell listening to the clergyman's announcement of his Calvinistic text. Probably a reference here for the value that plays in the story is the, is the idea of a predestined... Uh, the outcome of this is predestined and therefore one cannot question. One cannot question. At the close, however... A confused murmur went up. It began to wax, began to grow. Now, what's that say? That says it's not working. Same thing, same problem Veer had 
with the three officers he now has with the crew. They're uh, fidgeting. All but instantly then, at a sign, it was pierced and suppressed by shrill whistles of the bosun and his mates, and the word was given to about ship. So, this is how we're going to deal with the crew's misgivings. We're going to impose discipline and cut it off before it gets out of hand. Quickly keep it from growing potentially mutants. And Claggart is buried, dumped at sea. But the text says, in this proceeding, as in every public one growing out of this tragedy, strict adherence to usage was observed. Nor in any point could it have been at all deviated from, either with respect to Claggart or Billy Budd, without begetting undesirable speculations in the ship's company. Sailors, and more particularly men of war's men, being of all men the greatest sticklers for usage. So it has to be done by the book. By the book, because if it isn't done by the book, it could get out of hand. Remember the two sons of Aaron who lit their censers with the wrong candle and ended up being sacrificed along with the fatted bull, you see, or whatever it was. Uh, and what that gave rise to was the book of Leviticus. That is to say, what it gave rise to was the determination that we must follow all of these little details, we must um, we must surround the ritual act with incredible detail and ritual and rubrics and all the rest of it, so as to keep it from suddenly turning and going in some other direction, like a loose cannon, and suddenly somebody else is sacrificed. In the introduction to the to the establishment of the scapegoat ritual. The introductory phrase in that passage, uh, chapter 16 of Leviticus, it starts out by saying, after the two sons of Aaron had died, and then the story carries on. It is clearly, the, sacri the scapegoat ritual is clearly designed to address the problem of the death of the sons of Aaron. And it addresses it by... Uh, providing all of the Levitical uh, rules and regulations uh, that will have to attend that ritual because it's so uh, um, volatile. At any moment, it could turn and, and somebody other than the designated victim become the victim. And the people who preside over it, the priesthood, the veers and the officers in this story are the ones that are most sensitive to that possibility and the ones who mo most want to go by the book. And the book, really, is the book of Leviticus. They don't know it. They think it's the naval manual. It's just another version of the book of Leviticus. Although the book of Leviticus, I sh in its defense, let me say, it is designed to avoid human victimization. For similar cause, all communication between Captain Veer and the condemned one ended with the closeted interview already given the latter being now surrendered to the ordinary routine preliminary to the end. His transfer under guard from the captain's quarters was effected without unusual precautions, at least no visible one. If possible, not to let the men so much as surmise that their officers anticipate aught amiss from them, 
is the tacit rule in, milita- in a military ship. And the more that some sort of trouble should really be apprehended, the more do the officers keep that apprehension to themselves, though not the less unostentatious vigilance may be augmented. In the present instance, the sentry placed over the prisoner had strict orders to let no one have communication with him but the chaplain, and certain unobtrusive measures were taken absolutely to ensure this point. So, we'll get to the a chaplain scene next. But notice, he is now not called Billy. He is called the condemned one. Just the way the text speaks of it, I think it's significant. No communication between Veer and the condemned one and no, no communication between the condemned one and the rest of the crew. There's only one exception to that and that's the chaplain. And Melville does a masterful job with the chaplain. Well, we're given two views of Billy. One is, as Billy is in his jail cell, so to speak, he's uh, confined to the gun bay awaiting execution. And then we'll be given uh, a picture of Billy as he faces his, his execution. But it's when the accused one is in jail, convicted, a criminal, an outcast, that we are least likely to recognize what, if you will, the gospel has to say about this episode. So, um, Melville takes the opportunity to present, I think, one of the great parables of this story. So here's Billy sitting surrounded by the cannons in the gun bay where he's being kept. Over him but scarce illuminating him, two battle lanterns swing from two massive beams of the deck above. Fed with the oil supplied by the war contractors, whose gains, honest or otherwise, are in every land an anticipated portion of the harvest of death. With flickering splashes of dirty yellow light, they pollute the pale moonshine, all but ineffectually struggling in obstructed flecks through the open ports from which the tampioned cannon protrudes. So here is a source of light. There are two sources of light in this scene. The sources, and, and the question for us is, which source of light do we find most illuminating? One source of light is provided by the war contractors, those who profit from this ritual. And that source of light is dirty yellow lights that pollutes another source of light. And the other source of light is is a bank shot, as they say in Fool. The only other source of light, the real source of light, is the sun. Now, the sun is going to be the source of light here. But you'll notice the sun, in order to get, how is the light of the sun ever going to get into that gun bay in the middle of the night 
and com- where, where then it must compete with this other source. It bounces off the moon and bounces off the sea, and then the port that it might come in through into the room is taken largely up by a protruding cannon. So it has to come in beside the protruding cannon. And then, once in, it competes with the dirty yellow light that pollutes this other source. It's an absolutely masterful image that tells us something about how we illuminate this ritual. How is it to be illuminated? For me, the source of light that begins with the sun is the gospel source. It's the truth that will set you free. But in this situation, it can only get in the room by ricocheting off the moon and then the rippling water and then slipping beside the cannon and then coming into the room where then the competition must begin with the polluted source of light supplied by the war contract, those who profit from this gruesome ritual. It's one of my favorite passages in this story. Into that scene comes the chaplain, and the chaplain quickly realizes that he has nothing to offer Billy. And uh, his preachments, uh, Billy is uh, politely attends to them, but that's all. And as he leaves, he stoops to kiss Billy. And Melville is inviting us to think of Judas. The chaplain has come. The the one who is supposed to be bringing. Uh, the Christian light into this little enclosure. And he hymns and haws and finally kisses Billy and leaves. And then the text says, Marvel not that having been made acquainted with the young sailor's essential innocence, the worthy man lifted not a finger to avert the doom of such a martyr to martial discipline. So to do would not only have been as idle as invoking the desert, but would also have been an audacious transgression of the bounds of his function, one as exactly prescribed to him by military law as that of the boatswain or any other naval officer. Bluntly put, a chaplain is the minister of the Prince of Peace, serving in the host of the God of War, Mars. As such, he is as incongruous as a musket would be on the altar at Christmas. And then the big, the, the big question is, why then is he there? Because, indirectly, he subserves the purpose attested by the canon. Because, too, He lends the sanction of the religion of the meek to that which practically is the abrogation of everything but brute force. He provides the pseudo-religious gloss on the pagan ritual. And in doing so, he is the ally of Veer, in subduing the revulsion on the part of those that are feeling the revulsion. He makes it legitimate and respectable. 
So then we come to the execution. Billy comes up and stands facing aft. At the penultimate moment, his words, his only ones, words wholly unobstructed in the utterance were these. God bless Captain Veer. Now, Billy is not a Christ figure. But he is an extraordinary figure. In a way, Billy is the Rorschach test. When you look at Billy, do you see that he must die in order to serve military discipline? Or that he must be shown mercy because that's the Christian thing to do? So he's not a Christ figure. He says, God bless Captain Veer. And the, te and the text goes on, syllables so unanticipated coming from one with the ignominious hemp about his neck, a conventional felon's benediction directed aft towards the quarters of honor. He's talking to, to Veer and the officers, and he says, God bless Captain Veer. Now, when, when, when Jesus dies, he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Stephen died, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Were Billy to be really Christ-like in the situation, he would say, not God bless Captain Veer, but God forgive Captain Veer. The Christ thing to do in a situation like this is, among other things, to make sure, to the extent that one can, that one's death will not result in the victimization ritual being further ensconced. Without volition, as it were, as if indeed the ship's populace were but the vehicles of some vocal current electric, with one voice from alow and aloft came a resonant, sympathetic echo. God bless Captain Veer. I just want to take that to indicate that there is a ritual atmosphere and that it is highly mimetic. And everybody has picked up on this most solemn moment. And it's been echoed in their, without volition, echoed in their voices. It's an indication that it is highly mimetic and ritualized. Now, here's another great metaphor. The hull, remember the ship rocks back and forth. The hull, deliberately recovering from the periodic roll to Lourdes, was just regaining even keel when the last signal, a preconcerted dumb one, was given. Okay, that's when Billy is going to be hoisted up. But notice the metaphor here. The ship is rocking like this. The hull deliberately recovering from a periodic roll was just regaining even keel when Billy is executed. You see, the superimposition of the execution and the returning to even keel. That's the way it's supposed to work. The, the ship of state, so to speak, recovers from that periodic roll at the moment of execution and even keel. At the same moment, it chanced 
that the vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot through with a soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God seen in mystical vision. And simultaneously therewith, watched by the wedged mass of upturned faces, Billy ascended. And ascending took the full rose of the dawn. Isn't that something? And this time, the sun is not having to ricochet, but comes right into the scene. And what happens is the simultaneity of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is a moment of absolute epiphany for the human race. It's the moment when suddenly what has happened can be seen for what it is. And everybody's given a choice between its continuance and its abrogation. It's an absolutely transcendent moment. You see, the, when the sun has to go off the moon, off the water, beside the cannon, and then compete with the polluted yellow light, that's when it's hard to figure out. But that moment of... Ex that's why the Christians have... The sign of the Christians, at least a good number of them, is still the cross of the crucifix. It's the moment of recognition of what it's all about. And then Melville does something wonderful. Here's a little test. Imagine you wrote this whole story up till now. And now you want to say, don't look at, don't look at your books for this. This is, a, this is not an open book test. Um, you want to say that a, a Billy arrived at the yard end that he was hung when he was hoisted up. Uh, to the wonder of all, no motion was apparent that somehow his body didn't twitch or spasm or anything. You want to say that. What term do you use to catch the, the uh, ambiguity of the event uh, to describe this, the, the, uh, the figure of Billy? Well, Melville says, in the pinioned figure arrived at the yard end, to the wonder of all, no motion was apparent. Pinion. Now, there is a word. The word, it has two meanings. It means winged and bound. Now, there's a word for you. You see, that's where a person like Melville earns his pay. In the pinion figure. Of course, the reason Melville puts in that thing about there's no motion is because he wants to go immediately from the execution scene, jump forward to a few days later, and, uh, and, and show us a little discussion, absurd, ridiculous absurd, uh, discussion between the purser and the surgeon. And it's quite an abrupt change. It's masterfully pulled off. The purser a rather ruddy, rotund person, more accurate as an accountant than profound as a philosopher. Notice that the body didn't twitch. And so he says to the surgeon, what testimony to the force lodged in willpower? And the surgeon says, uh, your pardon, Mr. Purser, in a hanging scientifically conducted and under special orders, I myself directed how Buds was to be affected, 
Any movement following the completed suspension and originating in the body suspended, such movement indicates mechanical spasm in the muscular system. Hence, the absence of that is no more attributable to willpower, as you call it, than to horsepower, begging your pardon. So they engage in this discussion, you see. Uh, what? Later on, it says, uh, the purser says, aren't these spasms invariable? He says, well, the surgeon, well, generally they are. Well, doesn't that indicate something unusual in this case because there were none? And the uh, surgeon says, Mr. Purser, it is clear that your sense of the singularity in this matter equals not mine. Now, that's really the key to it. The purser, who's not given to philosophical thought, you see, he's just kind of, he's an accountant. He sees what is, and he's happened to pick up on that one detail and he relates it to his felt experience. His felt experience was that that was a highly singular, unusual event. And he wants to, he wants to attend to it as that. The surgeon wants to deal with it scientifically as, you know, the way, this part of the way it always is. And they have this, neither one of them are bringing to the event any, any, uh, analytical tool that can reveal what really was going on, what it was all about. But so we find them at the at mealtime chatting over their meal about what that might have been and coming really finally to no conclusion. And then we come back to the moment after the execution. It's a masterful literary aside to show what? To show that members of the crew continued to to uh think about that event and to try to to try to pin it down, understand what was unusual about it, why it, it stayed with them as it did. But then we go right back to the, the moment of the execution. The silence at the moment of execution and for a moment or two continuing thereafter was gradually disturbed by a sound not easily to be verbally rendered. The seeming remoteness, remoteness of its source was because of its murmurous indistinctiveness. Since it came from close by, even from the men massed on the ship's open deck, being inarticulate, it was dubious in significance. You see, the murmur is coming up. Dubious in significance further than it seemed to indicate the capricious revulsion of thought or feeling such as mobs ashore are liable to. In the present instance, possibly implying a sullen revocation on the men's part of their involuntary echoing of Billy's benediction. God bless Captain Beer. A sullen revocation of that echo. And so a strategic command is given. Pipe down. Discipline. Billy is buried. Uh, the text says this. When the tilted plank... Let's slide its freight into the sea. A second strange human murmur was heard. Blended now with another inarticulate sound proceeding from certain larger sea fowl, who their attention being, having been attracted by the peculiar commotion in the water resulting from the heavy sloped dive of the shotted hammock into the sea, flew screaming to the spot. And there they kept circling it low down with the moving shadow of their outstretched wings and the croaked requiem of their cry. Sea fowl come around and there's this harsh crying out that mingles with the murmur of the men on the deck. And then it says, Upon sailors as superstitious 
as those of the age preceding ours, there's a little piece of irony. The superstition of those people used to live, you know, the previous generation. Upon sailors as superstitious as those of the age preceding ours, the action of the sea fowl, though dictated by mere animal greed for prey, though dictated by mere animal greed for prey, was big with no prosaic significance. An uncertain movement, so far, everything has been audible, but not physical. That is to say, not a physical movement. But now it says, an uncertain movement began among them, in which some encroachment was made was tolerated just for a moment, and then the drum beat, which says everybody to their court. And then the text says, True martial discipline, long continued, superinduces in average man a sort of impulse whose operation at the official word of command much resembles in its promptitude the effect of an instinct. So the drum beat, the text says, dissolved the multitude. At the moment when there was movement and most particularly encroachment. Though the sacrificial rite is an attempt to terminate the worst consequences of what is essentially a mimetic crisis, it does so in contrast to prophetic and gospel approaches without in any way calling into question the underlying structure on which the crisis depends. Indeed, it relies on the mimetic features of mob reaction for its success, as these passages in Billy Budd suggest. When, under these circumstances, the ritual only incompletely achieves unanimity, it has as remedy only another application of the same mechanism where, so to speak, the gospel abrogation of victimization has not been preached, those revolted by one manifestation of it will mimetically resort to another manifestation. The difference between the two episodes often being that the latter one is more unofficial, employing, say, a posse or a lynch mob rather than a procedure that is more carefully sanctioned. And it is one in which the true sacrificiality of the, the event is less disguised. Until the gospel's more unqualified critique of the victimization rituals is preached, history must try to judge its progress by scrutinizing the negligible shades of moral difference between these two episodes. The encroachment, you can bet your boots, was in the direction of Captain Veer and his officer. And you can also bet your boots that it was potentially sacrificial. That is to say, mutinous. So all we get is going from the frying pan into the fire. Because the mechanism itself has not been called into question. It's, they're called to reports at an untypical time. Now, remember, we were told earlier that everything's being done by the rules, and suddenly here's an event that's being... Here's a, something that's being done an hour earlier than it was needed. So that's an indication, something... Um, 
all this occupied time, which was the, in the present case the object to, to beating to quarters an hour prior to the customary time, that such variance from usage was authorized by an officer like Captain Vere, a martinet, as some deemed him, was evidence of the necessity for unusual action implied in what seemed to be temporarily the mood of the men. With mankind, he would say, forms, measured forms are everything. And that is the import of the story of Orpheus with his lyre spellbounding the wild denizens of the wood. And this he once applied to the disruption of forms going on across the channel and the consequences thereof. Back to the French Revolution. We need forms. Forms. And, and we indeed do. And as long as we're sacrificial creatures, we, we do need forms. Uh, but we tend to, it's double bind. We tend to build forms with, uh, on, the, on the bones of the sacrificial victim. But the question is can he suppress a reaction, a revulsion to this thing? At the unwanted muster at quarters, all proceeded as at the regular hour. The band on the quarter deck played, sac played a sacred air, after which the chaplain went through the customary morning service. That done, the drum beat the retreat, and toned by music and religious rites, subserving the discipline and purposes of war, the men, in their wonted orderly manner, dispersed to the places allotted them not when not at the gun. So notice, discipline, ritual, and the official religious benediction of the chaplain are all applied to this situation in order to restore formalities. To conclude, French ships after the Revolution were rechristened. One ship, formerly the St. Louis, was rechristened the Ati, the Atheist. And the text says, such a name, like some other substituted ones in the Revolutionary Fleet, while proclaiming the infidel audacity of the ruling power, was yet, though not so intended to be, the aptest's name, if one consider it, ever given to a warship. Well, Melville leaves no doubt as to where he stands on it. Okay, so on the return of the Bolipotent from its, from its mission which, in which these events occurred, it, uh, ha it fell in with the Athi, and Veer was wounded, and he later died from the wounds. And he died before the great battles, the battle at the Nile and the battle at Trafalgar, where, where uh, greatness uh, and renown were achieved by some. And here's what the text says, and let's slip a little thing that one hardly even notices. Uh, Veer died. And then this is the commentary. The spirit that, spite its philosophic austerity, may yet have indulged in the most secret of all passions, ambition, never attained to the fullness of fame. And that one word sheds light all the way back on all of the veer uh, activity, you see. In, may have indulged in the most secret of all passions, ambition. Finally, the official version of what happened and the unofficial version of what happened and then how is it to us. Here's the official version. Doubtless written in good faith, the text says, 
uh, from a publication called The News from the Mediterranean, now long uh, extinct publication, that story says. And it says, uh, on the 10th of the last month, a deplorable occurrence took place on board the HMS Bolipotan. John Claggart, the ship's master at arms, discovering that some sort of plot was incipient among the inferior section of the ship's company and that the ringleader was one William Budd, he, Claggart, in the act of arraigning the man before the captain, was vindictively stabbed to the heart by the sudden-drawn sheath knife of Budd. The dead man and the implement employed sufficiently suggest that though mustered into the service under an English name, the assassin was no Englishman, but one of those aliens adopting English cognomens whom the present extraordinary necessities of service have caused to be admitted into it in considerable numbers. This is the mystification supplied after the fact in order to make it all seem appropriate. And then it goes on and it talks about the character of Claggart. And he was, he was a, uh, a perfect uh, sailor and a perfect petty officer and so on. And then it says, in this instance, as in so many other instances in these days, the character of this unfortunate man signally refutes, if refutation were needed, that peevish saying attributed to the late Dr. Johnson that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. That's the official version. Here's the unofficial version. The spar from which the foretopman was suspended was for some years kept trace of by the Blue Jackets. Their knowledges followed it from ship to dockyard and again from dockyard to ship, still pursuing it even when at last reduced to a mere dockyard boom. To them, a chip of it was as a piece of the cross. So there's the two versions of what happened. In Billy Budd, the clash between the powers and principalities and the gospel was, as it almost always is, ambiguous. There are many differences between Billy and a genuine Christ figure. But Billy's resort to violence is the single most obscuring feature of the clash. It was this that gave the powers and principalities just that gossamer-thin camouflage needed to pass off the sacrificial ritual as rational and legitimate. The cult itself is now so compromised and cornered by the gospel revelation that it can only hope to continue its clandestine operation by enticing the would-be exponents of gospel sensibilities to take up the sword or to give tacit approval to it. Uh, this is a story, a recent event, uh, 1982 event in Guatemala. One day in 1982, Santa Cruz, a small market town, meaning Holy Cross, uh, small market town north of Chichicastenango, was taken over by the army. The villagers were assembled and told that the catechists were subversives whom their relatives must kill that very night. Otherwise, the army would raise Santa Cruz and the neighboring villages. The army then withdrew, and the villagers discussed the brutal choice, unanimously concluding that, quote, we won't do it because the catechists were loved. So the villagers decided to uh, refuse the deed. But the five catechists insisted that they must. 
Quote, It is better for us to die than for thousands to die. You recognize that? At 4 a.m., a weeping procession led by the catechist arrived at the cemetery. Graves were dug. The people formed a circle around the kneeling men and relatives of the five drew their machetes. Many could not watch the scene. Some fainted as the blades fell and the executioner's tears mingled with the blood of the catechist. Next day, the army captain in charge of the area was informed that his orders had been carried out. Another source of subversion had been eliminated, or had it. Forcing the catechist relatives to kill them was part of an army policy aimed at alienating Indian recruits from their village origins by demeaning their race, religion, and tradition. But it failed to work in Santa Cruz or elsewhere in Quiche because the people honored such martyrdom. We remember them with holy reverence, said a witness to the catechist's death. The cult of sacrificial victimization is indeed in a compromised position when it must get its victims to perform the victimization in order to obscure the, the picture of what is happening. You see, it was army policy that the victims must become the vic victimizers. To me, that is an instance of, as gruesome as it is, of how desperate and perverted the cult has become and how lacking it is in, in rationale for continuing its, its uh, claim to legitimacy. But the people remembered something else. It's in that respect that I would leave us with one final little passage from the text. You remember at the moment of Billy's execution, it said, The vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot through with the soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God seen in mystical vision. That's that moment of epiphany, that moment of revelation. But it doesn't last. Time goes on. Life goes on. Uh, and uh, other things happen the day, the, the year, that life continues. And later on it said, the text said this, and now it was full day. The fleece of low-hanging vapor had vanished, licked up by the sun that late had so glorified. And the circumambient air, in the clearness of its serenity, was like smooth white marble in the polished block, not yet removed from the marble dealer's yard. And I think what we're given here is the hints of a, of a tombstone on which nothing is written yet. But the sky itself, the circumambient air itself, uh, no longer in that moment of epiphany or revelation, but now in the moment of ordinary day, that is the, is the cenotaph or the tombstone on which nothing has been written. 
I think the way to understand it is that Melville is giving us each that tombstone and saying, okay, now, it is really and truly a Rorschach test. You look at this scene and you write the, you write the epitaph. You write the epitaph. What happened here? And what you write tells who you are, tells where you are, tells where you store your treasure, what your, where God is for you, what you worship. And that's a wonderful little hint that the marble is polished, unwritten upon, and still in the marble dealer's yard. And we have to now, we have the official version of what what Billy's execution was about, the unofficial one, and now each of us has to has to step up and write it. This concludes Reflections on Herman Melville's Billy Budd. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.